Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. There were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Tonight, I want to talk to us this evening for a uh, kind of a placement holder here in our series uh, for this lesson tonight. Only the beginning, only the beginning. So this was the beginning of miracles, only the beginning. Amen. We're going to pray this evening and ask the Lord, amen, once again to touch our hearts, our minds, give us understanding, amen, of his word. Father, I come to you here this evening. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would grant us understanding tonight as we look at the scriptures one more time. God, I pray, O oh Lord, spirit of revelation, Lord, would come upon our lives. God, these words are the words that speak of you, and we want to see you, Lord Jesus, in this gospel. Lord, how this may pertain. God, to our own lives and our own, Lord Jesus, generation. I pray, O Lord, today, God, so that the world would know and believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing on him, they would have life through his name. I pray, O Lord, today, God, give us, Lord Jesus, I pray, understanding tonight, and grant us, O Lord Jesus, God, the Holy Ghost, Lord, that can teach us all things in the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen. God bless you this evening. Only the beginning. Our our writer here, the author of this gospel, John the Beloved, as we've come to know him, John had already introduced in chapter 1 the thought of creation. He is helped by his opening words to turn our minds toward creation that's contained within the first book of the Bible of Genesis. When he opened the Gospel of John, or the fourth Gospel as it's typically called, he started with that in the beginning uh, was the Word. And so with that, that steers our minds very quickly to other places that there has been that in the beginning uh, verbiage or phrase used. And we know that to be found in the first 
verse of the book of Genesis. And so our minds are already then turned toward that. And then John does a little bit of something more. He, he begins to contrast in his gospel uh, the light and the darkness for us and how uh, there was a, uh, the, the darkness did not comprehend the light. And he begins to contrast these two things. And again, our mind is stationed then in Genesis where the light and the darkness is spoken of in the opening verses of Genesis and how one was separated from the other. And then John goes on to tell us in his gospel concerning this word that was with God and was God that how all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And of course, again, he's, he's capturing our minds concerning this whole creation idea. And so with all of that in mind, we see then continuing on in chapter number two, the, the framework of this creation idea in the first several verses of John chapter number two here if you will uh, think with me here this is the miracle of Cain of Galilee at a wedding at a marriage of Jesus turning uh, water into wine and so here in in John two Jesus literally has some type of influence upon the water that's uh, placed inside of these water pots. And so with our mind already in a vein of creation, we think about to the beginning of creation, we see likewise in the opening verses that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And so the Spirit of the Lord had influence upon the waters then, just as now Jesus is having influence upon the water, turning water into wine. And this was grand because this miracle is somewhat different from a lot of the other miracles that we see in the Gospels. You know, some of the other miracles that we see are miracles of restoration. They are restoring something broken or restoring something that was lost. You know, given the ability to walk back to a lame man or sight back to someone that was blind or life back to someone that was dead. And so restorative type of miracles. There are other miracles that we see in the Scripture that are, are, are miracles of multiplication. For instance, the different times that we see the multiplying of loaves and fishes for the purpose of feeding multitudes or uh, even Old Testament scripture, uh, the sustaining of a barrel of meal or oil that was in a cruise, you know, the multiplying of something that was already there. But when we talk about turning water into wine, uh, this was a miracle of creation. Uh, this was a creative miracle, taking water and, and turning it into wine. I mean, water by itself, you could allow it set for 30 days and you're never going to get wine. All right. So this was a creative miracle. Again, all going along with that theme and that mindset that John has created for us here in the gospel of creation. And John, even if, if you want to look at it, staying with this, we know in the book of Genesis that we have the seven days that are counted as the seven days of creation or, or more specifically said the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest, the Sabbath uh, that was in the book of Genesis. And John, in some regards, has given us uh, a seven-day rendering as well. If you go back to John chapter number one, we read about whenever John the Baptist uh, told those that came and questioned him about whether or not he was the Christ, whenever John the Baptist denied that I am not the Christ, I am not that prophet, I am not uh, Elias, I'm not this one, I'm not that one. Whenever you read of that, and th those are verses 19 through 28, you come upon verse number 29 that says, the next day John 
meaning the day after John the Baptist gave the proclamation that he was not the Christ. So that being day number one, verse 29 then says the next day. So we have a second day. Then you go to verse number 35 and it says again the next day after. So we have the third day. Then in verse 43, we have the day following which would be the fourth day. Then we come to the opening verse in John chapter number two, and it says, and the third day, it's not going back. It's reckoning the third day from the last previously mentioned day. And since that last day that was spoken of in John chapter one and verse 43 was the fourth day, then if this is the third, you have five, six, seven. John accounts for then uh, seven days in the opening of his gospel as well. And so there's this correlation of constantly driving our mind toward creation and to not overdo it I guess but not to underdo it John then takes us to Jesus's first miracle in Cana of Galilee which happens to happen at a wedding a marriage is taking place in the opening chapters of Genesis we have the first marriage ever that took place the Bible speaks of how God made Eve. He, he took that rib from the side of Adam and he made Eve and he took Eve unto Adam and gave her unto him. And Adam said those famous words, well, this is, this is bone of my bones and this is flesh of my flesh. As a matter of fact, a lot of that we even hear at marriages and weddings as vows that are, that are said and repeated. And then he says in Genesis 2, 24, the scripture says, therefore, Shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife? Not just cleave to his woman, all right? But cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And of course, the terminology of one flesh, uh, that they were to become one flesh, which is the consummation of a marriage, all right? And so we had that in the beginning. We have then a marriage in view here in John as well. And something interesting, I believe, concerning this wedding or the story of a wedding or a marriage uh, that Jesus is at at Cana of Galilee is that Jesus has his first miracle, as the scripture says, taking place at a marriage, at a marriage. And, And it's not that Jesus, and we use this sometimes, you know, uh, we have our, uh, a religious weddings, you know, there's civil weddings, but then there's church setting religious type weddings. And uh, we absolutely support the idea and concept that the Lord is a part of that marriage. The Lord is a part of that wedding. And sometimes we use the whole first miracle at Cana of Galilee, even within ceremonies, talking about how the Lord was a part of that marriage or that wedding. But the thing was, it wasn't that Jesus, and I think this is important, kind of like almost a little side note, but it's not that Jesus came and made himself a part of the wedding, but the Bible tells us very plainly in verse number 2 of John 2 that Jesus was called to this wedding or that he was invited to this wedding. And I think it's very significant uh, to underscore the fact that Jesus was invited to this wedding where he performed his first miracle, just the same like today that he should be called or invited alongside every marriage. Amen. And every wedding uh, that takes place. Uh, Interestingly enough, culture that day, uh, when a man and a woman got married, they didn't go and get on uh, some huge airplane and go flying off to the Caribbean. 
all right, uh, custom of that day. As a matter of fact, they didn't necessarily go on a honeymoon anywhere. They stayed home for a week. They'd stay home for a week, and they would keep kind of an open house with all type of festivities that would be going on. And so with that being the case, it's highly probable then that the first miracle of Jesus, yes, happened at a wedding, but most likely the miracle took place at a home. Or took place, if I could say even more clearer, in the home. And that's, that's, a, that's a wonder to me in and of itself, that the first miracle, the first place that Christ uh, showed forth his glory for others to be a witness of was at a marriage in the home. And I would dare to say that he still wants to display his glory in our marriages within the context of our homes. The Bible says in John 2 verse 11, I know this is the last verse, don't get anxious thinking I'm going to be done here in 15 minutes. But uh, verse number 11 says, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. We see here the theme of John is still yet pulsating here through the scriptures. The miracles taking place here for the purpose that there's going to be a manifestation of the glory of the Lord. And hopefully that manifestation of that glory is going to give uh, more credence to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that even the disciples and those that had knowledge of this and witnessed this, this solidifies their belief, which was the intention of the gospel of John. The fourth gospel, as we will find out as we continue to study it, will highlight uh, predominantly, it will, it will put on a pedestal seven miracles uh, throughout the pages of the gospel of John. And that's excluding the resurrection, of course, which is a miracle within itself in our eyes. But people is going to witness these different miracles and these miracles themselves are going to stand up almost like John the Baptist's to be witnesses to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Uh, we'll even see later, I believe in chapter number three, that Nicodemus, when he comes to the Lord at night, he says, we know that you're a great teacher for, for no man can do any of these miracles that you're doing except God be with him. Nicodemus had it partially right. It was not just God with him, but God in him. Amen. And so because he was the Christ, the son of God, he was God manifested in the flesh himself. And it's through these miracles that belief is going to be garnered and, and glimpses of his glory is going to be shared. Therefore, again, just underscoring, supporting the purpose that people would believe in the Lord and that people would have life through his name. But when we start to talk about a manifestation of his glory, in John, the ultimate glorification or the ultimate display of his glory, of Jesus Christ's glory, is found in Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. You may remember, uh, having read the Gospel of John before, that in John chapter number 7, it records for us a time that Jesus, the Bible says, it was in the last days of the festival uh, of a feast that Jesus stood there crying, said that if any man thirst, let him come unto me, and that if they came to him, and if they believed, that then out of their belly would flow rivers of living water. And it's in this context that Jesus said then in verse 39, it's written in our English Bibles, uh, 
parenthetically here in verse 39. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. And what that is alluding to is that Jesus had yet had not yet died on the cross. He had not yet went to Calvary because his ultimate glorification again was seen ultimately in the cross. Now leading up to Calvary, Jesus at different times is going to pull back the curtain and give us glimpses of glory. He's going to pull back the curtain and give us glances of his majesty. Uh, you know, it's almost like Moses on the backside of the desert that sees the burning bush and, and all of these things. And he has then a later encounter with the Lord. And he's saying, Lord, show me your glory. You'll remember that from the Old Testament. And God says, well, there, there's, there's a cleft here in the rock. And I'm going to put you in there. And as I pass by, he put his hand over him. And the Bible says, though, then he removed his hand so he could see the back parts of God's glory. He couldn't stand it all or take it all, but he just seen a portion. And so Jesus Christ, even in his earthly ministry leading up to Calvary, there's times that he's pulling back the curtain upon himself and he's given us manifestations of his glory. And the miracles that he does are in essence some of those times that the curtain is drawn back, that we are seeing manifestations of his glory. Because ultimate glorification was death. Even in his high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, Jesus is praying in his human nature and he's crying out and he's talking about, he says, he's talk, crying out unto the Lord because it's his human nature, praying to the divine nature. He cries out and says that his hour had come to be glorified. He's speaking about crucifix. He knew what was just over the horizon, that the hour had come for crucifix. And speaking of the terminology, his hour had come, we see that all throughout the Gospel of John. There are certain times that Jesus speaks about his hour has not yet come at different times. There's other times that he tells us that as, as Calvary is getting closer, that he understands and he says, my hour is coming or my hour is here because Calvary is becoming near. Here in our verses of scripture in John chapter number two, as Mary, his mother, approaches him concerning uh, the, the need here at this wedding, he speaks to her under the terminology about how his hour has not yet come. All right. But the Bible says this concerning the glory aspect of the Lord, because this is really following the thought process of John here, what he's laid out for us in John 1 14. You remember that the word was made flesh and we what and dwelt among us and we beheld what his glory. The only the glory is the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. And so the word being made flesh and dwelling among us, there is in conjunction with that, then times and modes and ways that Christ was going to showcase his glory even prior to ever reaching Calvary. And we were going to behold that glory or certain sects or certain groups of people were and sometimes greater audiences were of his glory. But it would totally be unveiled at his death, burial, and resurrection. And so the starting of this unveiling, if I could call it that, the starting of this unveiling of his glory is beginning, first of all, in Canaan. Cana of Galilee of him turning water into wine and what Jesus does here in these 11 verses is something that he's 
already alluded to, amen, to his disciple Nathaniel and others that were with him. Uh, he told Nathaniel uh, whenever he called him to be his disciple, Nathaniel was wondering whenever Philip gave word that this is Jesus of Nazareth, this is Joseph's son. Nathaniel asked, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And there's some other things we could talk about that. And I know I haven't given you any videos online and all that. But nonetheless, we're going to touch on some of the things uh, that we didn't touch on last week. But nonetheless... Nathaniel, he heard this Jesus of Nazareth, how can this be? And the Lord, he approaches Nathaniel and tells him, oh, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. And Nathaniel's just taken back by that. And he's saying, wow. He said, you're, you're the, the rabbi. You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus was amazed that he would believe so quickly. And Jesus told him, he said, uh, you know, because Nathaniel wants to know, how in the world do you know me? Jesus said, well, I seen you when you was under the fig tree before Philip ever came to you. And uh, Nathaniel believes as a result of Jesus saying that. And Jesus is like floored. He's like, Nathaniel, if, if, you, if you believe just by me saying that I saw you under the fig tree, he said, you're going to see greater things than these. And those greater things Jesus is starting to wade into. In John chapter number 2 with his first miracle at Galilee. There's going to be six other miracles to follow this one. Also then the resurrection. And so he's saying there's, there's going to be other flashes of glory that I'm going to expose you to. If you, you think just knowing that you was under the tree was something, just wait. And the Bible says then in John 1, in the very last verse of John 1, And he saith unto him, this is Jesus speaking. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, now, the word you there is in the plural in the Greek. So Jesus isn't just speaking to Nathaniel, but he's speaking perhaps to those other disciples that are following him now, like, like Andrew and Philip and, and Peter. But he's addressing them all. He says, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, we pause here, right? Because we understand that the Bible is not composed of just a solitary book but there is this weaving and this ebb and flow as we've already seen with John reaching all the way back to Genesis right some things that we pick up on and so uh, the Bible is this great tapestry that's so woven together that whenever we read about heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending if you have read the Bible through or have any any type of uh, baseline for the Bible, you know that that ain't the first time you've heard of something like that. And so we begin to ask ourselves, where else have we read of the angels of God ascending and descending? I mean, is anybody perhaps in the listening audience out in, in Facebook land, if you want to call it that, thinking perhaps about Jacob in the Old Testament and his dream that he had of a ladder set up on the earth and it reached into heaven and the bible says he seen he saw angels ascending and descending upon it and so whenever these words are chosen in john these provided a very important link for these people this provided an important link for them and their jewish heritage and their oral tradition all the way back to father 
Jacob and his encounter that he had with the ladder and the angels ascending and descending. As a matter of fact, where that took place, where Jacob actually was at, has some very deep-seated connections, amen, where he slept and where he dreamt what he did. But this is what Jacob says in Genesis 28 and verse 16, whenever he awoke, he woke up and he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I knew it not. It's important because not only is he saying, surely is the Lord in this place, not only was the Lord there, but watch now, but the Lord had already been there as well because the angels are described as ascending and descending but ascending first meaning that there were some spiritual things that had already taken place at that particular location before as a matter of fact that place was known for some uh, spiritual movement if you will between heaven and earth it was earmarked as that and so John is making a connection here to these angels ascending and descending at this particular location. And he says in verse 51 of John 1, he says, hereafter, which uh, several, several other translations even omit this word hereafter, and it, it may not be uh, totally, uh, genuinely uh, translated as it should. Some say it's better for the hereafter to, to say from henceforth, meaning that from here on out, you're going to see heaven open up and angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, just follow with me. I really have a point in all of this. There, 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 there are just a couple ways that you then might take. Uh, verse 51. Angels are going up and down. The Scripture says, he says, angels are going to be ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Just like they ascended and descended up on the ladder. The ladder was a connection between heaven and earth. But the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, human nature, divine nature, 100% God, 100% man. He was a connection, just like the ladder, between heaven and earth, between God and and man. New Testament scripture even speaks of Jesus Christ as being our mediator. He's the mediator between God and men. The man, it says, Christ Jesus. Amen. And so the place where Jacob saw these angels and this happening was where? The Bible says that he calls that place Bethel or the house of God. So not only do we have angels ascending and descending up on this ladder, but we have angels that are going up from Bethel and descending down to Bethel. Now, John describes as though angels are going up from the Son of Man and descending down to the Son of Man, providing for us, if you will, another connection, meaning that the Bethel, the house of God of the Old Testament, is the Jesus Christ which dwelt or tabernacled among us now. Amen. In other words, some spiritual things 
happened at that location but the ascending and descending upon the son of man indicates there's some spiritual things happening with the son of man there's some spiritual things happening with Jesus Christ namely this first miracle and the others that are to follow Jesus now is the house of God Amen. He is as 2 Corinthians 5, 19 says, to wit God was in Christ, right? Reconciling the world unto himself. He was in many episodes the New Testament temple. We'll look at this perhaps next week. But whenever you get further in John chapter number 2, like verse number 19, uh, it's when Jesus goes in and he straightens things out concerning the money changers that are in the literal temple. And he says to them in verse number 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They thought they were talking about that literal temple. Jesus is doing a little play on that, but they're thinking he's talking about the literal temple when in reality verse 21 tells us but he spake of the temple of his body. And so see, he's turning people from what once was to a whole new revelation. Amen. What the house of God was to them in the Old Testament, Jesus would be to them in the New Testament. What the, yes, what the temple was then was God now manifested walking among them now in humanity. Amen. And so in all this, we have a simple lesson. A simple lesson that we gather just from the first miracle of the first 11 verses of chapter number 2. And the simple lesson that we can learn from this is very, very basic. I'm not trying to insult anybody's intelligence. And that is this, that whenever they ran out of wine, and we might take another session or somewhere along the way, and we'll talk about wine, the fermented, unfermented, and what's actually all going on here. Because I know in the back of some people's minds, Jesus' first miracle was making wine. Right? Okay. And so I don't have time to go into all that tonight, but that is a good, good little segment to consider. All right, what, what was all meant by making wine culturally and for this time and day? All right, shelf that for a moment. Um, so here, here is a simple lesson. Whenever they ran out of wine, Mary, the mother of Jesus, found him and basically told him that, Jesus, uh, they have no wine. Here is the most basic little lesson that we can glean from this, and that is when there was a need... Mary, the mother of Jesus, presented it to him. When there was a need, she brought it and presented it to the Lord. So, folks, please don't be overwhelmed with the different needs that enter your own lives and feel like you're troubling the master to present it to him because there's none better to present it to than to present the need unto the Lord. One source even tells us in this day, customarily, that if they had ran out of wine during this time of festivities, that they, the bridegroom, they could even be fined for having ran out of wine. For that matter, to be without wine or to be without anything that was for their guests that had come to this wedding and this time of festivities would have been disgraceful for them as a family because they would have been negligent in being hospitable to the people that had come under their roof. And here's something very important uh, uh, concerning the Jewish people. The Jewish people, uh, hospitality is in essence a doctrine to them. 
Hospitality is a doctrine to them. If they have someone come in their home, they absolutely believe in taking care of their needs, food, drink, if they need a place to stay. Uh, you know, they are not satisfied unless when that person leaves, they have left with something of themselves. And they've left with something of the person that they have stayed with. And so hospitality is a very big thing that we see all throughout the scripture. They, they revered it as a sacred duty of theirs to be hospitable to people. And so if you're having this grand marriage feast, people coming and going so on and so for food and such to be provided you want to make sure there was enough because uh, you're you're satisfying your duty and obligation of hospitality as a jew all right and we see this all throughout the old testament we see and given some insight to why this may happen uh for instance abraham and sarah the bible speaks in the old testament in the book of genesis that abraham is approached by three individuals come to find out those three individuals are angels okay happened to be some of those that were dropping by his house before they went to Saab and Gemara, all right, to take care of business. But these three angels come, these three individuals come to Abraham. What do you see Abraham doing very quickly? He's talking to Sarah. Let's get some bread made. He sends a servant to go, go, go kill a calf and bring the meat. They are supplying, if you will, food and drink for these people. What are they doing? They're being hospitable. They, they're showing hospitality. They felt like it was their sacred duty to do so. For that matter, Lot, although Lot is in the land of Sodom, he still has some, some moorings, if you will, and some teachings in his life. Uh, Lot is in the land of Sodom. There's a couple of individuals that come there. Lot seems to be a magistrate at the city gate. What does he do? He says, come home and abide in my house, right? Come home and abide in my house. Come to find out those two individuals were angels as well. Uh, it was known in that day for, for Abraham and those and those of Father Abraham and the Jews going forward. It was horrible in their estimation for someone to travel through their land, needing somewhere to stay and it not being provided, especially if that individual ended up being killed. That was just horrible because life was sacred. And they had the responsibility of someone was in their realm and sphere that they, that within their area, that they should be protected and cared for. And so we see this over and over again. People being hospitable with food, drink, water for the washing of the feet. With all of this in mind, Hebrews really kind of gives the, 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 the icing on the cake with everything in mind. Why, why we do this? Hebrews 13.2 says, be not forgetful to entertain strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels. Abraham and Sarah did. Lot did. Angels unawares. For that matter, the two disciples on their way to Emmaus in the Gospels, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, they're going where they're talking about the Lord. All of a sudden, the Lord shows up, starts talking to him. Remember? Uh, what about the events of this state? They don't recognize it's the Lord. But the Bible says Jesus made as though he would go further. But those two disciples, it's toward evening. They constrained him to stay. What were they doing? Showing him acts of hospitality. And whenever they have him stay in the breaking of bread, he was known to them. They would have missed it altogether, not realized who they'd entertained. Had they not brought so they were being hospitable unto him. So that culture was deeply driven by all of this. And so that's why then Mary's saying they have no wine. Uh, we, we, we can't allow uh, this to be a mark upon them not being hospitable in this sacred hour. We, we got to do something to help. But Jesus knew the scripture says that his hour had not yet come. 
He knows that Calvary's not on the calendar right now, all right, meaning it's not the day for that. I'm not being crucified today. My full glorification is still yet somewhere in the future. But he thinks, I know that my full total glorification is then, but maybe I can give them a manifestation of it today. Maybe I can manifest some glory to them today. And when we read about the miracle of turning water into wine, this is why it was not a, a miracle that was known when it happened by the multitudes or by everybody in the festival, all right? The Bible says that those servants that drew the water and gave it to the governor, if you will, of the feast, they knew where the water came from or where the wine came from. They knew concerning the miracle. No doubt Mary knew and the disciples that were with Jesus knew, but everybody else that was to partake of that, they had no idea concerning where that came from, what happened in order to make that what it was in that particular moment. And so perhaps the privacy of this miracle may have somewhat to do with Jesus knowing that, you know, right now is not my hour. I'm just going to give a little bit of a manifestation of the glory. I can't let everything just be known right here in this moment. So he pulls back the curtain on his glory. He does a creative miracle of turning water into wine. The servants who drew the water know about it. Mary knows about it. The disciples know about it. But we learn another little general lesson from all of this, and that is this. Being a servant to the Lord, being a servant to the Lord gives you a front row seat to what goes on. And to a more intimate experience than just what the other general populace has. All right? For instance, even think about, if you will, good old Nehemiah of Ode. Right? He's a cupbearer, right, unto the king. He's a cupbearer. He is a servant. He's, he's bringing that before the king. He's drinking it taking a taste of it to see if there's any poison in it and present it to the king. Every day he has access to the presence of the king. But he's a servant to the king. He has access every day while other people have to wait at the appropriate time to be beckoned in. But since he's a servant, he has access every day. And so there is some benefits to being servants even unto our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords. And so whenever Mary presented this, Jesus says unto her, he says, woman, what have I to do with thee? Now, we're modern day society, and when we read Woman, what have I to do with thee? We might already set a tone to it. Jesus saying to her, woman, you know, <laughs> right? What do I have to do with thee? But uh, that's because we have a disconnect in how that may be used today and how it was used in that time. The title woman or what was used in the Greek language here, uh, it was a title of respect and not one of disrespect as many probably have in their minds right now today. For that matter, uh, whenever we see Jesus on the cross in John chapter number 19, Jesus again addresses his mother as woman from the cross. And I guarantee you, uh, he's not being disrespectful in his hour of pain and, and body writhing in pain in that moment. No, it's just a respectful terminology for their custom in their day. But the question that he asks is a phrase that means this. When he says, what have I to do with thee? The phrase literally meaning, what do you and I have in common? Mom, Mary, woman, respectfully, what do you and I have in common? Because Jesus, on the side of his human nature, he's the son of Mary, and that's his mother. They have this mother-son relationship between the two of them. But on the divine side of his nature, 
Jesus is the master or the Lord of Mary. Mary is his servant, so to speak. And so it's on this side that Jesus, the divine side that Jesus is, is thinking, my hour has not yet come. It's on that side that the divine side that the commonality between mom and son, amen, goes to Lord, master, and servant. It's on that side that all the commonality falls by the wayside because we know for sure some characteristic traits about Jesus. Jesus, through his earthly ministry, never sought out his own will. He never sought out his will. For that matter, he never necessarily took in consideration the will of anyone else. In this instance, including mama. But save the only will that Jesus ever uh, uh, went and, and, and desired and wanted to fulfill, he says over and over again, is that he wanted to do the will of his heavenly father. But we see Mary's Mary, right? She's mom. She is a mom. And as we even looked at this past Sunday morning on Mother's Day, Mary has kept several things in her heart about the identity of her son, about Jesus Christ. She understands one of those things that the angels told the shepherds was that he was the Christ. He was Christ the Lord. He was, he was the Savior. And so Mary sets Jesus up for this miracle by telling the servants, do whatever he says. Now, that seems like an odd statement to tell some servants because that's what servants do anyway, right? They do what someone else says. But she said, do what he says so that those servants would be expecting him to say something. So Mary is placing the focus on Jesus and Jesus carries out instruction and he carries out ultimately a miracle here, thereby showing one of the greater things that he told Nathaniel and the other disciples that they would see, that would come about. Look at the scripture of John 2 and verse number 6 here this evening. So this is only the beginning, folks. John 2 and verse 6. And there were set. It's kind of give us the setting after, after all of this. This is the setting. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. That's a measurement. So what we must understand about these water pots is that they and any remaining water that they had in them says these were after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. These were normally used for Jewish purification practices. What that means is the water, if there was any left, the water that was in these water pots, these six water pots, was normally used and set aside for the purpose that when people came, guests would have their feet washed with this water. All right. Or the people of the home that came in from outside for the evening would have their feet washed with this water. It would be dipped out of there to wash their feet. That this water was used for the purpose of washing their hands. It was a common tradition and practice for them to wash their hands before meals. That's still a good practice today. And we are on the, uh, you know, extra exponential washing hand mode right now all through quarantine. But they would wash their hands before meals. They would even wash their hands in between the courses of their meal. 
I mean, they, they, from what I read, they would pour water down on their hand where the water would go down to about the wrist, and then they would turn their hand and pour water again where it would go from the wrist off to the tips of their fingers, even between the courses of each meal. And so here's Jesus, though. These things, water pots, water, that is typically used for purification rites. Jesus, note, note my wording here very carefully. Jesus replaces the ceremonial water in the ceremonial water pots with something new. The water becomes wine. And when the governor of the feast tasted it, according to his own admission, he was expecting the worst. Not because he knew what had went on with Jesus and all that, but he was just expecting the worst. But the Bible says he called it good. As a matter of fact, he almost related as though as the bridegroom had kept the best until last. And so what we see, though, in Jesus' first miracle, again, listen to me, Jesus replaces the ceremonial water, ceremony. In the next verses in John chapter number two, we've already alluded to, Jesus replaces the temple with his own body that we've already talked about. And all of that is pointing us toward a direction of John chapter number three, where he'll have a meeting and he'll bring a person called Nicodemus, who the Bible says is a Pharisee, which means a Pharisee was very, very staunch about keeping every little letter of the law. Right. They're very staunch about their ceremonies. Very staunch about all of these things that have been prescribed by the law. So in John 3, Jesus then takes this Pharisee Nicodemus, someone very greatly steeped in ceremony, and he brings him to the realization that being born of the water and the spirit is really the only way to get into the kingdom and see the kingdom of God. That all the laws and ceremonies by themselves will never do that for him. And so it's almost as though Jesus has his little, his hammer and his little chisel, and he's already just plucking away here by taking ceremonial water pots and doing something new in them. Then later at the temple, speaking of himself being the temple, that if you destroy it three days, I'll raise it up. He's always picking at these ceremonies and these things, and he's trying to point everybody to him, amen, of the real story that needs to be told. Why? Because he wants, as John wants, people to believe in him, believe that he is the Christ, and believing in him that they would have life through his now, I close here this evening with this. Um, scholar and writer William Barclay, he shares with us, he gives us some insight of the culture of some of the Greeks of that day. And that it, it sheds somewhat of a light upon what just happened here in the first 11, chap 11 verses of chapter number two. Of course, the Jews are living uh, predominantly in a Greek world. There's Hellenization, which basically means Greek influence upon them. Uh, you have the Romans. But... In this day, Barclay says that the Greeks had a story or that they had a legend about one of their gods, a god called Dionysus, who happened to be the god of wine. They believed that this god of wine, Dionysus, would often attend the festivals that they had. And that there was one particular legend and story of this God where 
there were some people that came to a festival and they entered a building. And this building they entered, they sat three empty kettles that they had taken into this building. And they left. And on the outside of the door, they took their signet rings and they put their seal uh, up on them, uh, much like you would see uh, spoken of scripture, how the stone that was rolled over the, 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 the tomb of Jesus was sealed. Uh, and that's more than just having like mortar around it, all right? That's having the seal of authority upon it, you know. And so they sealed this so that they could ensure that no one had tempered with the building or what was on the inside. Their legend goes, the next day, you know, since this uh, Dionysus God of wine visits our festivals, the next day they went in and these three empty kettles were found filled with wine. So there's a little light here shined then in the 11 verses of John 2. Because the Greeks, that was their story. For the Greeks, that was their legend. But boy, John and Jesus comes in blazing with the guns, folks. Because Jesus came to do among the people and even among the Greek culture what they always dreamed of their gods could do. Jesus didn't. It wasn't a legend for him. It wasn't a story for him. It was reality. He was doing it. It wasn't just some fable to be told and passed on. Jesus was doing it among the people. He turned water into wine at that festival marriage in Cana of Galilee. And that miracle of Cana of Galilee, as I've turned our lesson tonight, was only the beginning. Only the beginning of everything that Jesus would do and would accomplish in order to secure belief in himself from those of his culture and day. Amen. I'm going to ask tonight if we could bow our heads. Amen. I want to pray this evening because I need, I need some miracles in my life. I need some creative miracles. I need some creative miracles. Perhaps there's some people out in the listening audience tonight that need some creative miracles in their marriage or need some creative miracles in their home. Hallelujah. Our great God, Lord, we come to you today. We're thankful, O oh Lord Jesus, for the sacrifices that you have made. We're thankful, O oh Lord Jesus, God, for having made yourself known, Lord, in flesh as Jesus Christ. Lord, all things were made by you, and without you was not anything made that was made. We still need some creative acts, Lord, to take place, Lord, within our lives, our homes, and our families. I pray, O oh God, today you're able to walk among us, Lord, in our lives. Help us, Lord, still yet today. I know, Lord, you still want people to have belief, Lord Jesus, and faith, God, in you and in your name. Lord, there are many things out there, Lord, that are trying to, God, be simple, cheap imitations. God, they're legends and stories, God, with nothing truly founded in them. They are eyes, Lord, that see not and ears that hear not. But God, you are the great God, the creator of the universe. You spun all things into to order, Lord, and you did all things by yourself, God, and you are still, Lord, doing things today. You're trying to, Lord, take us, God, perhaps from ceremony and tradition, God, to the reality of the power and the righteousness that is found in you. You can do a creative act, Lord Jesus, of us being born again of the water and the spirit and set in our feet on that street that is which called straight and establish our goings. I pray, oh God, Lord, 
this is only the beginning. God, the way that you make yourself known to us, Lord, when we first come to know you, is only the beginning. God, there's so much more, God, that you will unfold and manifestations of your glory that you will reveal. God, that will cause a deep-seated desire and hunger for you in our lives. Help us to know you in the fullness, Lord, of your power and of your resurrection. In the lovely name of the Lord Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. In Jesus' name. God bless you this evening. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.